Hey, good to see all of you. And um, uh, I don't know if we got to do this, but I want to just, uh, you, you know, we want to do this. And it's not just so much of um, uh, purposelessness, but just to greet one another as the Bible tells us to do so. And so uh, if you can help maybe two people around you who you didn't come to church with, if you could go and give them a handshake or fist bump and say hi. All right. So let's welcome one another to church for a moment. It is so good to see everyone today as we continue in the series. As Pastor John had mentioned, um, we have those devotionals and we want to go through it together through the songs of ascents. And so on your way out, you could pick one up. You could ask one of the ushers or you'll see them laying out there and uh, make sure you do that. The instructions are there each every two days. We go through a psalm and we want you to just go through it. It's. Sometimes we read one verse and a paragraph on some kind of devotional guide and we're done. But just to let it sink in a little bit. And so uh, make sure you go ahead and do that and join us in doing that. And so for last week, this week, and the following week, we're going to preach out of that text. And also then the following, we'll go back to Genesis. Uh, but we're having kind of a little uh, series in between. And so we're on Psalm 127. A psalm that we know so well and really the... The phrase we see there, unless the Lord, right? And we want to pray for a blessed year. I'm sure all of us want that. You want maybe this year to be better than last year. You want it to be a blessed year. And I don't know how you would define this. Maybe it's winning that lotto, right? Every time it gets to a billion dollars, everyone starts talking about the lotto. And the news talks about the lotto. And we catch ourselves maybe daydreaming. What would I buy if I got the lotto? What would I do? Where would I go? What would I wear if I got the billion dollars? But it is more than just that. It is even better than that. It is better than finishing whatever degree or getting a promotion or buying a bigger house. It is even better than that. It encompasses all of that. It is the Lord. God is in the midst of my life. He is the core, the center of my life. And if he is not in the middle of my life, all is in vain. All is in vain. Uh, we see this often, and uh, uh, every year, you can Google this, just about every year there's a story of some marathon runner who runs the wrong race, right? Um, they're supposed to run in this race, but they ended up going to the wrong place. Uh, there's stories of people that ran the wrong route, and they were disqualified. There were people that were cheating and got caught, and so marathons are interesting. And there was one a few years ago where a man, an American man named Tyler Pence had won. And it was a small little race, and the winner would get $3,000, but he was not favored to win. The two favorites were two Kenyan runners who were way in the front, and they happened to be running, and they were following a volunteer motorcycle guide, and the motorcycle guide just decided to go down this other road. And so one guy turns, the other guy turns, and you can imagine, well, he's turning, I'm turning. I guess we're going the right way. And they ran the wrong route. And so this American, Tyler Pence, ends up winning just because he stayed on the correct path. Think about running a race and not knowing where the finish line is. Think about running a race and not knowing what the purpose is. Think about jumping into a car. Imagine you are the driver. And imagine someone jumping in just saying, just drive. You say, where? I don't care. Just drive. 
And maybe you think about life. You think about last year. You think about the last three, four years. You think even now, the beginning, the first few weeks into it, maybe life has been like this for you. You are busy. You are tired, but never rested. You are always having to do something, but you still feel like I haven't fully achieved. And the lie that the world tells us and what you achieve determines your value has infiltrated your soul and you think I am not much. And I need to keep on chasing something but not knowing what I'm chasing. And that is where that phrase, unless the Lord, unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord is there, all is in vain. Today I want to talk to us about this uh, life that is not just about busyness. As Blaise Pascal had noted that busyness sends more people to hell than unbelief. It is not just about busyness that defines our success. You hear people talking about how early they get up to go and lift weights. And you see celebrities that are up at 5 a.m. and 4 a.m. And they have this full day and they do so much. And maybe you watch it and you say, oh, man, I feel so inadequate. You know, I, I miss a, I, I sleep a half hour less and I get canker sores and I'm all grumpy. I can't do that in four hours of sleep. How do they do so much? Um, but we see from the psalm a picture of a blessed life. And this blessed life is a life that is centered around God. And it is found, this blessed life brings one of a life that is meaningful, restful, and fruitful. And those are the three key words, three key thoughts. And we're going to break this message down today. A meaningful life, a restful life, and a fruitful life. The blessed life is a meaningful life. A life in God now gives us meaning. It is the New York Times contributor, April Lawson, who says, who defines the word meaning. That is the stand-in concept for everything the soul yearns for and seeks. Everything the soul yearns for and seeks. All of us have a yearning and we try to fill it with the things of this world. The latest gadgets, the latest toys, the newest things, the applause of man, more money and more people, more events and staying busy and somehow in the midst of it. Whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, in the midst of all of that and people and parties and this, and maybe there's a sense that my soul is looking for something more. Unless the Lord builds the house, it says in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. The two things here that are mentioned, the house and the city. The house and the city represent someone's life. If you could have a house within the confines of of the city, that is your life. That is security. That is what my life is all about. And so the most important things, the core, the meaning of my life, the, the desires of my soul, we could say, is the house and the city. And for the ancients back then, this is what it was. It was the house, unless the Lord builds the house. You could build a, a house with an extra room, Another 500 square feet, 
extra acres, whatever it is, and upgrades the nicest, newest things. And yet, unless the Lord is in the middle of that, unless the Lord is in the middle of my life, the center of my life, labor is in vain. You could watch over the city imagining, boy, these walls provide some kind of security, but unless the Lord is my security, the watchman watch stays awake in vain. Life without God, with all the things that might be accumulated in it, without God is meaningless. You know, there was a short play back in the 60s in England by uh, a person named Samuel Beckett, and he did a work called Breathe. And in it, it was a, a, it was a show, and people would come, and they would have it darkened out, and they would have the sound of a cry. It represented the birth or the crying of a mother giving birth. And then they would open up the curtains, and in it was a mess of things. Random things all toppled over. And while that was open, and the play was only 35 seconds, you could hear the breathing, the sound of an inhale and exhale, and then crying again. And then it would end. The message, though it was so short, it is so powerful. That life starts and then it ends with a cry. And in the middle we might breathe. And if it is all about the material things, what a mess it is. Yesterday I had one of those Saturdays where I didn't have much to do. And so I got up and I decided to clean the garage. Right? That's the one thing all of us could probably clean if you have nothing to do. I guess I cleaned the garage. And I remember I, I spent just maybe an hour or so. It wasn't that much. But I was throwing things away. Part of the thing is you throw things away. Right? Throw things away. Oh, stuff that, uh, you know, Ashley used to play with when she was in kindergarten. Throw it away. Right? You throw it away. Um, stuff that, you know, my wife has been keeping but hasn't been using. And if I call her and ask her, she would say I should keep it. So I just throw it away without calling, you know. That is wisdom, all right? Um, so it's a, uh, throw it away, throw it away, throw it away. And I swept it a little bit. It's the things, and I pause, and I say, we have accumulated so much stuff. Over the years, so many things. It's bursting at the seams with all these things. Some of it I remember, some of it I don't. Some of it is useful, a lot of it isn't. And yet we hold on to it like it has some kind of value. It is uh, William Provey, who has written a book called Darwinism, Science or Natural Philo Naturalistic Philosophy. He summarizes Darwinism, the thought that uh, there is no God. He sur uh, summarizes Darwinism in this way. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And there are these basic Darwin's views, basically these Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purpose, no goal-directed force of any kind. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. A life without God gives us no ethics. It gives us no origin. It gives us no value, no purpose. If we are here by accident, by chance. And so this is a life. A life you could build the best home and live in the best city, and you could build the 
desires of your soul with the material things. And if you don't have the one who can only satisfy the soul, it is in vain. This year, as you pursue all that you're doing, whether it is another degree or, or the next level at work or that other house or whatever it is, and those are all of God's blessings, we can say. But if God is not in the middle of it, our promotions will ultimately let us down. Our demotions will ultimately hurt us. If God is in the middle of it, everything is okay. And so the blessed life is one with meaning. The Secondly, the blessed life is a restful life. It gives us rest. Verse 2 says this. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Rising up early, going late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why do we wake up so early? Why do we stay up so late? Because our minds tell us there are things you need to get done. Remember those days, and some of you are in the midst of, we have some of our collegians here, in the midst of college and finals weeks come. And everyone is saying, oh, i got to stay up all night, and I'm going to this, you know, one cubby in, in the library where I study, and you, you know, you're drinking caffeine, and you're trying to finish off this work. Because there's an anxiety, i got to get this done. And you're looking around, you say, everyone is running around anxious. And because everyone else is like that, how can I sleep? Or if you have something due tomorrow and you have to get up early, you cannot sleep. You wake up before the alarm when there is something significant to do. When our mind is telling us there is something so important. Yet it is God who gives to us rest. He gives to us true rest. It says in this little phrase here, he gives to his beloved rest. It's interesting that uh, there was a, a survey done uh, for married men. What is their number one worry? And it was money. They needed to provide for their spouse, for their children. It was money. And they stayed up nights thinking about that. So we have specific worries. All of us, we all walked in with something. If we could have it as a, a backpack, all of us would have some kind of a bag. Money. Oh, what, my parents, my child, uh, my work my health. And all of us had walked in with something. And these things keep us up at night. And we ask that what if question. What if, what if, what if? What can I do? How can we get this? What if I don't pass this? What if I don't get into that program? My life is this. And what if this happens to my loved one? And we carry the burden in. And then we also have general worries. And this is what uh, Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, calls dread. He says all human beings deal with dread in their life. A sense of dread. It's nothing specific. It is vague and yet and, and undefined and yet we feel it. Dread is when someone asks you, a close person asks you, hey, is everything okay? What's wrong? And something doesn't feel right, but you can't give a specific answer. I, I don't know, but it just doesn't feel right. Just feel it with this burden. And we walk around with this as humans. And without God, and we as the ones trying to solve my life and control my life, cannot help but to be filled with this anxiety. 
Because if I'm to control this, and everything is out of my control, I get up early, stay up night, trying to control the things around me. But if God is in the middle, and he is in control of all things, all of a sudden I could sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep, it says in that verse. It's interesting that you could translate that, and commentators talk about how you could kind of translate it two different ways. The first part is he gives to his beloved sleep. So it's a gift. God gives us sleep. He gives us peace. Right? We pray about it at night. God, these are my concerns. I pray about it. I cast my burdens to you, and he gives me peace, and I sleep. That's true. Another way to translate this is he gives to his beloved while he sleeps. So the one, the Lord of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, we read. We look at God, and he looks like he's asleep. And even though he looks like he's asleep, he is still in control. We could translate it that way. He gives to his beloved while he is asleep. When we look at him and it looks like God is not active and I don't feel or hear from him, and he say, God, are you there? Are you asleep? And yes, he is still there. And that comforts us as well. You see a story of this in Mark chapter 4. The great storm hits um, the disciples and Jesus on the boat. We know the story very well. And uh, in 438 it says, While, And he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. The boat is about to capsize. The guys are screaming. And they come down and Jesus is asleep. And now they are offended. They're angry. How can you sleep? Do you not care that we will perish? How can you sleep? And that's the human reaction. What they thought was Jesus was asleep and he didn't know what was going on? And sometimes we go to God, God, don't you know the turmoil of my life? Don't you know the storm that I am in? How can you not let, fix this right away? And yet while he's asleep, he is in control. And when he wakes up, he says, it's interesting in verse uh, 38, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus wakes up. And he rebukes the wind, peace, be still. And I wonder if maybe he raised his hands, maybe he didn't. But I wonder if he said it to the direction and the disciples are running around. And maybe when he yelled, peace, be still, they all stopped. The wind stopped, the water stopped, everything stopped. And I love the description that comes after. There was a great calm. Megas is the word. A great calm, a big calm. You ever wake up, you ever, um, I know some of our uh, 242 folks, you guys went to the mountains, you might have experienced this. You know, sometimes you go out to the beach, you go for a hike, or you wake up somewhere, it's just, you know, you're in the wilderness, and maybe you go out to the yard or to the front, and it's so quiet, and so quiet. Your phone doesn't get the reception, no one's awake, there's no sound of cars, and you're sitting there. And yet, it speaks to us. There was a great calm. And so God is at work. 
and we can sleep. He is the source. Don't control everything. You cannot. We are finite. We are not God. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was uh, one of the most famous pastors in his era. His nickname is the doctor. His nickname was called the doctor because he was a physician before he decided to go into ministry. And the doctor is often noted as saying to people who are disturbed, who are spiritually struggling or going through some hardships, the first question he always would ask was, how is your sleep? How is your sleep? Because it is in our sleep that tells us that we have some inner peace. It is our sleep that says, God, I trust you. It is our sleep that says, God, I've let go. I'll let you drive. You know, as a child, you would remember maybe your parent driving you for miles if you went on a road trip and you could just sleep. But as you get older, as you become the parent, as you become the adult, now you're worried. Are they awake? Is there danger? Are we going the right way? And you cannot sleep because you feel like you have to hold on to the wheel. I love what Eugene Peterson uh, describes to pastors. He talks about uh, the pattern of day, uh, the Hebrew pattern of day. You know, and the, for the Jews, the day would start at sunset. That was the beginning of the new day. And so as it got dark, the day it started. And then when the sun came up, it was the second half of the day. The day would start at sunset, and then as the next day, as the sun would come up, is the second half. And it is, this is what he says, that it is when we go to sleep is the beginning of the day. It is when God goes to work. And God puts to order all of our lives. He puts to order the world around us. He is developing his covenants. And when we wake up in the morning, in the second half of the day, we are just simply responding in faith. But always his grace is previous. And he says, at the day's end, I'm ready for sound sleep. For you, God, have put my life back together. I love that prayer. Read that one more time to yourself. You have put my life back together. So you wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you. You've been working on my behalf. You've been working in my life all night. You have now given me this second half of the day that I could now experience your grace. And I love this picture that we have. And thirdly, the blessed life is one that is fruitful. Fruitful, the picture of having children is mentioned here. The fruitful life. It says in verse 3, 4, and 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The gate is a place where the enemies would try to come. And you would go and meet them. The gate was a place where, the, where politics would happen and the leaders would be there. And so it was a place where you would have to go defend yourself. And he describes the blessed person as someone who is fruitful with their children. It's interesting because the children that are mentioned here are the children of one's youth, meaning older children, grown children. It is, uh, you, 
lot of us have children who are now past teenagers. So I had them when I'm younger, and now they're, they're of help. Because children, when they're little, let's be frank, right? They're no help, right? They make, you, they make you something sentimental. You might get caught throwing it away. They say, Mom, why is my you know, art in the trash? Oh, Dad put it there as he was cleaning the garage, right? He didn't get permission. But this is the picture. And the this picture we see is a warrior um, who now has his arrows um, in his quiver, and it's filled. What are you saying here? is if the children are arrows, the bow is the parent. And the bow dictates which way the arrow will go. The arrow doesn't dictate which way they will go. The arrow doesn't say, oh, I just want to, just shoot straight down. Just straight, shoot straight down. That's all I just, just, and you shoot it. No, just shoot it straight up to the sky. Just shoot it all the way, and you shoot. We live today, and our culture today says, you know, it's let everyone do as they please. And that is now infiltrated to children. Now it's just let the kids dictate whatever they want to do. On a minor level somewhat, it's, oh, if the kid's not having fun, we can't do it. If the kids don't want to go to church, I'm not going to go. And then they become teenagers and junior hires. And it becomes more difficult. And all of a sudden, there's this pattern that is happening that you cannot overcome. We live in a crazy culture today when a child says, oh, I want to change my gender. I feel like I'm a boy or I'm a girl. And now the politically correct thing is for the parent to say, oh, I support you in this. No, the arrow doesn't get to choose. It is the bow that has to choose. Say, no, you are going to live in this way. You are going to go in this direction. You are going to follow the ways of God. Why is it say in in Ephesians chapter 6, for example, children, obey your parents. Now, many children today could read this, but the parent has to give instruction. A child cannot obey if there is no instruction, if there is no guidance. If everything is catered, what do you want? What do you want? And a child is dictating now, taking the wheel, saying, I don't know, and throwing a temper tantrum and going the way of their feelings when they do not know who they are. And it says in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so when they are grown up, and the foundation, the cement is hardened. You know, if you have younger ones here, and those of you outside, if you have younger ones, and you think, I have plenty of time with my children. I got plenty of time to teach them what's important. No, you don't. They grow up quickly. And before you know it, that concrete foundation is hardened before you know. And you cannot mold it and make it. You have just a precious few years. And if you cannot, now you think, oh, I could shape it later. No, once the foundation is set, that's it. There's this uh, tweet that I saw and I wanted to share. This. I took a screenshot of it. This is the four-generation uh, fade he talks about, um, he says here, parents don't make church a priority for their kids, number one. It leads to kids grow up and make it an even less pri- of a priority for their kids. 
third generation, kids grow up and make it no priority for their kids. And by the fourth generation, kids grow up with no concept of God. You can see that happening all around us. Where our culture is telling us, do whatever you want. Children, let the children do whatever they want. Just support them and say, I love you regardless. And we have to think about them as a bow, and if, uh, as an arrow. And if the bow doesn't dictate the direction, says, no, you will be someone. You will sit at church. You will go to church whether you like it or not. You will pray before you eat. You will listen to your parents. You will do as they tell you to do. And if they grow up without that, we see the trends of what happens here. It is Dr. James Dobson who says, children are not casual guests in our home. They have been loaned to us temporarily for the purpose of loving them and instilling a foundation of value on which their future lives will be built. They're not guests. But yet we think they're guests. And all we do is try to want to make them happy. Whatever makes them happy. I will do whatever makes them happy. No, we have to do what is right. And we have to lead them to the Lord. There's a story of uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower talks about, in his memoirs, um, when he was nine years old, he was going to go trick-or-treating with his older siblings. But his parents had decided at age nine, he was too young to go along by himself, so they said, you can't go. And he was looking forward to going trick-or-treating all day. And when his parents delivered the bad news, he had a temper tantrum. He had a meltdown. And he goes to the backyard, and he starts punching the tree in the backyard till his hands were bleeding, literally. His father sends him to his room to cool off, and later his mom, Ida, comes into the room. And Ida comes into the room, and she bandages him up and lets him cry it out. And after she bandages him up, she says this to him, and she quotes a proverb, Proverbs 16, 32, He that conquereth his spirit is better than he who taketh a city. He who conquereth his spirit is better than he who taketh a city. He talks about that in his memoir six years later. The greatest lesson he learned was that moment that he learned from his mother that he cannot do what he wants and he has to control himself. And he says especially came into play when World War II was happening and in the midst of all the criticism he was facing from every, which, every angle around him. And he realized he could not lead in an angry manner. And so he started doing what was known as, uh, historians call it, the, the anger drawer. He would write names of people he hated, right? The people that just infuriated him, said things about him. He would write their name. Foreign leaders, uh, leaders within U.S. and critics and so on. And he would write it. He would put it in a piece of paper, roll it up. And as he threw it into his bottom drawer, the anger drawer, and as he closed it, he ended his anger towards them. And so he was able to lead in a humble disposition. He was able to lead in this manner. And so our prayer is for a blessed life. I want all of you to have a blessed life. If you win the billion dollar, dollar lotto, we're going to get a great church building, right? So I'm looking, I, I, I pray for that, all right? That's fine. 
But more than that, even, is that you to believe success without God is nothing. Everything without Jesus is nothing. But with Jesus, I have everything. And so my life finds its meaning, finds its rest, finds its fruit. If I live for God and put him at the center of it all. And so let's make that our life goal this year. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you that our lives are not so much of what we accomplish, how much we're noticed, how many things that we have, but it is about what we have in you. So Lord, I pray for everyone here, from students to workers to parents, All of us, Lord God, may we pursue you in our vocation, in our relationships, in our worries and burdens, in our rearing of children. And may we be satisfied knowing that you are in the middle. And if we go in that direction, that that is good enough, God. So would you help us in that way? Lord, the world around us keeps telling us, no, it's so much more. You're not measuring up. You're not pretty enough. You're not rich enough. You're not smart enough. It keeps us telling us that. But Lord God, we know in you, we have all. And unless you are there, everything is in vain. So Lord, we put our trust in you. So God, would you bless us now in the work that we do, in the people we meet. And may the reason we do all these things be found in you. May we acknowledge you every morning for the grace you've shown us in our lives. So God, we thank you. In Jesus' name.